Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we are going to look at Genesis chapter 30, kind of. Um, the narrative here is continuing with the children of, of Leah and uh, Rachel, and Leah so far has born four children, you know, for this covenantal patriarch, so that, you know, Jacob's kind of taken on that identity, this process is happening, and, and here Leah has born uh four children to Jacob, as you know, I mean, if, if you know the story, J Jacob's going to have a lot of kids. So these are, these are the first four. Um, and initially, as we, as we begin this chapter, you see that there's this issue between Rachel and Leah. R Rachel envies her sister. And she says in verse one, give me children or I shall die. Which sounds, it, you know, could sound like a, uh, What's the right word? She's a little histrionic. And what I thought to myself is she reminds me of her aunt, Rebecca, who said, if Jacob marries a foreign woman, my life is just worthless. So it's almost like maybe the apple didn't fall far from the tree here. Yeah, and it, it sounds dramatic. It sounds like that. But, but, but it's not completely. Right. Oh, no. Right? The, the, the whole process of childbearing isn't just, a, you know, I've always wanted kids. Right. It's no, this has a sociological and economic requirement to it and, and for being a woman in Absolutely. that part of history. So make sure we're paying attention to that because that affects how, how we read what else is going on here. For sure. Because Jacob responds to Rachel's envy. And so this happens in verse two. And Jacob's response to this whole thing is that Jacob is angry. He's angry with Rachel. And so you have this uh, kind of, circular uh, social issue between mm -hmm. um, between these three people. You know, Leah has kids, Rachel's envious, Jacob's angry with Rachel. Um, and there's a lot going on here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that in Rachel's eyes, and perhaps in the eyes of society and the way they dealt with things like the dowries and the bride price, Leah has been and I quote here, paid for because uh, Jacob has worked the seven years for Leah, and now he has to work another seven for Rachel, but those years are not yet up. And I don't know whether Rachel feels like because that is not complete that she is not able to have children. But what is notable is the fact that it is seven years before she herself bears a child. Four years in, she brings in her maidservant, Bilhah, and she has children with her. But Rachel herself does not bear a child until that full seven years has on up. Which has happened for Leah. Right, right? which the, has happened for Leah. That full process has happened with, uh, with Leah at this mm -hmm. point. There's some creation connection, which, which we're going to bring up here as well in a minute. Um, but it's interesting to see how that part of the story connects. Yeah, I think it does. And you'll see it as you mm -hmm. go forward even. There's yeah, more and to this. And we're not yeah. claiming that there is a physiological requirement no. of a dowry, but within the narrative of the story, you can right. see that kind of playing a role. You have these two sections of seven. One is complete, children respond. Yeah. The other one's not, no children. Rachel the author's is, doing something here. Yeah. Which unfolds as the story goes forward later. And so J Jacob kind of enters into this. But there's uh, the part we want to focus on is this line that Jacob says. And this happens in verse 2. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? And this statement is loaded. Um, so let's just start walking through what's going on here. And okay. we want to dive into this not just because it helps us understand Genesis 30, 
This is a theme throughout the biblical narrative um, that comes up again and again. If you're reading Lamentations, if you're reading the book of Isaiah, um, Job, some of the Psalms, uh, the parts of Genesis that deal with like Sarah and even creation itself. This is a theme that comes up all the time. And so we figured we, we might as well stop, slow down, zoom out, focus on this. Yeah. Um, and in, in response, it should help us understand this chapter as well. So first, theologically, barrenness is equated uh, with divine omnipotence here. God causes barrenness. That's the implication of what Jacob's saying. So on one hand, we can read that, you can read this and come to the conclusion that God is just cruel. God, God's responsible for evil in the world in the same way that God here is responsible for causing the suffering, this barrenness to, um, to Rachel. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and this is, this is the component that I think the biblical narrative is trying to emphasize in, in this passage, but in, in any passage like this, um, and particularly Isaiah comes to mind. Isaiah plays this card as well. Every event must trace its way back to something. This is like uh, Thomas Aquinas and causality, okay? If Rachel's barrenness is the result of something else, they would be attributing power to that source, to that something else that has caused Rachel's barrenness. So Israel, being monotheistic or henotheistic in, in, in this Example, I, I mean, Genesis has this problem. Sure. We say Israel's a, a monotheistic uh, faith, so there's one God, there's one ultimate being. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you, explain that. Henotheism. Henotheistic, is that the same thing as monotheism? Wait, you know, right? <laughs> well, You explain they, it. Me explain it? Yeah. Uh, well, henotheism, maybe I don't. Is that the same as monolatry, where there's a God, who is supreme, but there are other gods. Monotheism says that there's no other god at all. There's yeah. no other beings that are, are supernatural deities in that sense. Right. Maybe smaller ones like angels and demons, but no gods. Yes. But then henotheism is like, yes, there's a god, and he may be the supreme god, or if it's a goddess, it may be she is a supreme goddess, but there are other gods that that person or that being interacts with. You see this a lot in things like those court scenes where God is leading a court. And, um, you know, like in Job, like you mentioned, or even in Isaiah, that comes up a little bit with Mm -hmm. creation. Uh, And, okay, but then you say that, you go, well, isn't that pantheism? No, No. because in henotheism, there's still one supreme. There's one that you go is is better, bigger, mightier, in more control. Kind of the father God or the head God. And and the reason this for this whole aside is because throughout Genesis... Um, and a lot of the earlier texts of Israel, they seem to acknowledge that these other deities might sure. exist. And that comes up later on, too, in chapter, I think, 31, when we talk about those household gods. Yeah. And even the way Laban's right. household interact with worship of Yahweh, different from the way Jacob's household does. Now, in a book like Isaiah, you're going to see that Isaiah saying, hey, those don't actually exist. Right. Now they're moving away from But that. we just need to be honest that in mm-hmm. part of the Hebrew Bible, there seems to be an acknowledgement that uh, these other gods, there's other mm-hmm. deities. The emphasis is just that ours is way better. Right. And eventually that kind of evolves to go, yeah, not only way better, ours is the only one. Right. And right. I think that was a reaction against Babylon under exile. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and there are 
uh, you know, sociological reasons for that development. Sure. Mm-hmm. And there can, a lot of people hear that and go like, oh, no, no way, the Bible can't do that. Well, re- ask why. Right. What were they trying to interact with, engage in, deal with, and communicate about their their tribe up, up over and against these other tribes? Mm-hmm. There's good reasons for it. Those can actually be theologically powerful. Right. Don't get caught up in, in some of those details. Um, but whatever one is happening here, um, this is a metaphysical stance that's being taken. Um, that there is one singular, infinite, and transcendent source of existence. And in order to uphold that, this being needs to be all-powerful. Right. So no goddess can come in and change somebody's fertility or infertility, Right. which we come up and, with later in chapter 30. And when you have a sort of pantheistic model, it gives opportunity to say, the barrenness is that God's fault, right. but look, this God's good. Yeah. When you say, no, there's one source over all of this, so where's the bad stuff come from? Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting. Christianity, modern Western forms of Christianity, I, I want to be clear about that. Right. The solution to this was the devil. Oh, yeah. And even with that, that comes from Zoroastrianism. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't consider that effect there. Um, but you hear this a lot within Christianity where they say, you know, God is good, something bad happens. You know, it's either everything happened for a reason or, you know, the devil's up to no good. And the the inclination to do that is because we don't want to have to blame something on God. Right. How do you deal with that we, we suffering want God, built into the we universe? We want God to be powerful mm-hmm. and good. Um, and then so when something isn't good, well, whose fault is it? Well, that was the devil. And here's the problem with that. You've now equated the devil uh, on a power level the same as God. That's right. That's an issue. So you have to be careful with that language. So that's why you're reading in a book like Genesis, there's barrenness, there's suffering, there's a problem. And Jacob said, it's God's fault. Yeah. And it's not because Jacob's mad at God. It's because in order for God to be God, it has to be God's fault, or else Jacob would be attributing power to something or someone else. Right. And that's what we have to see within within this conversation. Um, what this is, is this is about theodicy, which is a word that maybe you've heard before. Um, I don't know that it gets a lot of airtime. And I, I want to emphasize this because we have to tread diligently on this terrain. In our modern scientific, you know, supposedly rational enlightenment culture, it's really easy to read a passage like Genesis 30 and say, you know, how barbaric. If, if you believe that some God that causes women to be infertile, want, want nothing to do with that. Yeah. And I completely understand that response. And, and listen, if anybody's going around today going, hey, you're, uh, you're infertility, that was God. Okay, we have science to like show like, hey, this is actually what's going on here within right. the human body and right. all these other effects. Um, but to try to look at this from the view of the authors and the view of the first readers, and not just this passage, but a lot of the places this comes up, which is quite often within the biblical narrative. And specifically here, where does barrenness come from? You know, is it El? Is it Asherah? Is it Odin? Is it sure. Aten? You know, that, that's, they're actually trying to answer that question. Oh, absolutely. 
And and all these competing worldviews, those are at stake here. So so to claim that your God is supreme requires you to make other claims as well. And claims that, you know, we might look at and be like, ooh, that's not good. But for Jacob in this situation, what's the alternative? To say that his God is not actually supreme? Exactly. Right? That's what's at stake here. Um, And in the theodicy conversation, this is the dilemma. Okay, so the theodicy can basically be broken down into three statements. God is all-powerful. God is good. There is suffering and evil evil in the world. And of those three statements, you can pick two. Mm-hmm. Um, as we look around and live with empirical experience, looks like evil and suffering are there. So that takes up one of our categories. So of the other ones, you get to pick one. Either yeah. God is all-powerful or God is all-good. So just to put this in context, Rachel is barren. Either God is good and is not the cause of her barrenness, you know, actively present with Rachel and her suffering, mm-hmm. which would also mean that the source of the suffering lies elsewhere because this God is good, right? Right. Which would then mean that this God that is good is not a transcendent, singular, infinite source of all things. This is true. Okay. So tracking. The other option here would be or... God is all-powerful, and even barrenness must trace its way back to this God, even if it is at the expense of this God's goodness. Right. That's what we're seeing here. Um, and, and I'm not saying that that articulation of theodicy, so that's kind of the classical uh, algorithm of theodicy. I'm not saying that that's the best. In fact, um, I, I do think there are some better answers to this theodicy question, but people have been wrestling this for thousands of years. Um, and anything you read on like even modern system, uh, systematic theo- theology, you're going to see people still interacting with this, trying to come up with, with the best way to do it. Um, and it's a very complicated, it's a long conversation, been going on throughout history. We just need to be aware of how, how tenuous this claim is and how it's uh, impacting the story. So Jacob says that God has withheld the fruit of the womb. And you have to read that and go, what do you believe God is like? And however you answer that question might be more complex than we initially realize. So we need to have some humility while answering it. And we need to have some grace when you're reading a narrative like this, that it, it wasn't so simple. And maybe you read this and go, well, I'm just smarter than Jacob. Maybe, but I imagine that if you unpacked your perspective on this kind of issue, that there's going to be some holes in it as well. Oh, for sure. There's some universal questions here about suffering and who causes the suffering. Is it humans? Is it society? Is it God? Mm-hmm. You know, because different states like this, in our cultures, barrenness is not necessarily a state of, uh, of suffering, suffering yeah, as long right. as it's chosen. But on the other hand, if society has expectations for people like they did back in this day, well, then is it society's expectation that causes the suffering or God? Yeah. You know, that's and, one and way to look at especially it among many. If, if you're reading this passage with a little bit of skepticism, right. you know, it, it's worth going. Barrenness isn't necessarily the problem here. Right. It's the fact that they uh, have created a sociological condition with exactly. barrenness that turns it into... So barrenness itself is not suffering. Right. This is just a state of being. Right. What makes it suffering is how the, the social... Uh, uh, mm-hmm. posture towards a barren person affects that person. Yeah. It, it, that's what causes the suffering yeah. here. 
And that's worth saying. Now, Jacob's maybe not considering that because this is the world that he lives right. in. Right. He's, he's, you know, you don't discover water if you're a fish. So as I believe it was McLuhan said, so yeah. yeah. So uh, um, we have to go ahead and go like, okay, so Jacob's making this assumption. Rachel's working with this assumption that right. the barrenness is going to cause suffering. So mm-hmm. where did that come from? And mm-hmm. and Jacob goes, well, our, our God's all powerful. You know, we, we're we not saying that Aten or Asherah or El or Baal or any of those have right. any any... Uh, effect on our lives. Your therefore, goddess, your mandrakes. <laughs> <laughs> the, therefore, uh, this had to come from God. Right. It had it had it had to be God. Um, and just just to help us see another angle on this, you see this in Isaiah, where Israel is going to get punished, and it's going to be by the Assyrians, right? And then the Babylonians, and you see Isaiah constantly go, but God's the one controlling them which elevates the presence of God. God's all-powerful. Even Assyria and Babylon are are Mm -hmm. the instruments of God's hand. Right. Also means that God did that to you. Causing suffering, yeah. You know? How do you cope with that? And a lot of people read it and go, how terrible this God. Okay, but what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just the the problem with this theodicy conversation. And we we just need to be honest about that. So we're two verses into this chapter, and we're just getting started on Genesis 30. <laughs> and, and there's another part of this that I want to bring up. The, the, the statement, um, it's fascinating. And one of the other parts of this is the whole thing on the fruit of the womb. And we've seen this in the conversation of barrenness throughout Genesis so far. Uh, this God, who apparently is the source of barrenness, and that's done in order to maintain the theological perspective in light of suffering in the world, okay? But this God always happens to be hyper-present among barren women. Um, should also add here, when we say barrenness, we think infertility. Right. Um, barrenness in this world can also mean just unable to carry a pregnancy to full term. Mm-hmm. Um so you're talking miscarriage here, yeah. which was much more dominant in the ancient world than it is today. So uh, when I say barren women, I'm kind of including all of that. Sure, in the, the sense of I cannot bring forth life in some way. And that's where and, it connects with yeah. fruit of the womb. Yeah, sure. Right? So, uh, and, and every time you see that you see one, God's hyper-present with women who are experiencing this, mm-hmm. and it's always talked about with this fruit language. And, and that's really important to connect because now we're getting even further into a very complex, but I think a, a more satisfying description of theodicy. Because this depiction of childbearing and fruit, it's not new. We've already seen this just within Genesis already. And hopefully you're listening and you're going like, oh yeah, no, no duh. Yeah. Gen- Genesis 1 and 2. Um, when humans are created, the language given to depict their ability, and, and it's even a command to procreate, um, is to be fruitful, right. to bear fruit. Hence, Rachel and, and others, again, throughout Genesis, are not able to bear fruit. And it's worth saying that despite our scientific or enlightened perspective, that that can be grievous in any age and oh, culture. Oh, of course. Okay? But in this epoch especially, this is also a survival question. Yeah. It's not just I wanted children and I can't have them. It's your your ability to to live in the world is going to be greatly hindered. Absolutely. Um 
so on one hand, no children means the end of a legacy. Right? Absolutely. A woman didn't inherit except through her children. Mm-hmm. So she needed to have them. And wouldn't be able to continue on any genetic line, right? Oh, upset, and that's yeah. huge, especially in the Jewish mindset. It and really it, is. I want to talk about that more in the next chapter or two. Okay. Well, and that but it, Israelite viewpoint of a genetic, a genealogical that concept of history. We saw that. Was that in Genesis 4 we talked about that? I, I think, think you could so. go back to the Genesis 4 episode and um, to have your legacy ended mm-hmm. was one of the biggest curses Absolutely. that could be given to you. Yeah. And, and so that that's one part of it. You know, it means the end of an identity. It also means the lack of support uh, through like a, a tribal collective. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you're, you're incredibly dependent on one another and your children are going to be how you're going to increase that interdependency. And so not being able to have children, end of legacy, and an identity, um, it, the, the, the social laws for how inheritance works, mm-hmm. you're now eliminated from that. And you're le- less likely to survive just economically sure. w- within that kind of culture. And so what begins to happen is barren women, um, they relatively get outcasted because yeah. of these effects. Which is also why it, when, when Isaiah, I know we're bringing up Isaiah a lot, when Isaiah mm-hmm. talks about the widow and the orphan, yeah. it's those same effects. They're, they're not able to uh, work with inheritance anymore. They're not able to uh, have someone with power that they depend on. I'm not saying those are good things. I'm, I'm not saying, oh, of course, women then. should depend on a man to have power. I'm saying in that, in that culture and time of history, and we shouldn't judge it. It was the reality. That's the reality, and mm-hmm. it might have been a reality for a reason. Absolutely. Yeah, eliminate all of the things that we've created over the past like two, 3,000 years, mm-hmm. and what what society need to look like in order for it to work. Right. All right, so I know we're, now we're getting into other issues. <laughs> uh, but being able to, uh, being unable to bear fruit, it kind of implied the end of your own life. You kind of, at that point, knew, I'm done. Yeah. And this is why ancient cultures often remarked that to be barren was to be cursed. Yeah. And and so when and this wasn't just Israel. This oh, is no. almost every ancient culture. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that you can enter in with uh, as you're reading through Genesis is how did this particular ethnic group deal with that issue of uh, barrenness and cursing? Yeah. And what you find is that Israel's answer to that is different. So if you just enter into Genesis and you go, "Wow, whoa, they're this barrenness thing that this is weird." If you enter in and go, so everybody else, barren is cursed and the gods are some way causing that. Mm -hmm. How is Israel different? What makes them different in this? And that all comes back to, well, how does God respond? Well, what else is dependent uh, on bearing fruit within Genesis, what we've seen so far? And the short answer is everything. That's how it all works. Yep. yep. Uh, every every seed bearing plant, all of that language is everything's built on this process of being able to create and create and create and create. It's yeah. the ongoingness of creation. Mm-hmm. The whole Genesis narrative surrounds the acts of, of plants and creatures and the earth bearing fruit in order to continue the life of the world. Mm-hmm. And where does this ability to bear fruit come from? The singular, infinite, transcendent source of all things. Yeah. Okay. So that's the picture that Genesis begins with. Life and existence is, is, you know, born fruit of the divine. Um, and one of the ways that you'll sometimes hear this talked about, especially like in mystical circles, is that creation is the fruit of God's womb. 
God is like a mother who gave birth to life in general. And, and I'm going to be explicit here only to emphasize the gravity of the Bible's intention. You know, if we try to smooth over this, we might miss it. Mm-hmm. The, the life and the fruit of God, the child, you could say, in right. a way, it dies. Yeah. It doesn't come to term. Okay. You could use the image that creation, the way it goes, is either like the death of a child or you could say miscarriage. Like a miscarriage, yeah. And what that does, uh, and, and you know, if you think we handled this in Genesis 3, but just to bring it back up, the primary outcome of all of this is death. Right. Okay, so once we're honest about that, you begin to see in the book of Genesis is God like a barren mother? Is this why whenever the Bible talks about a barren woman, it portrays a very intimate presence of the divine? You know, is God in stories like Sarah and Rachel? Mm-hmm. We've already seen this. Is God actually showing the most important behavior in a world of suffering? Empathy. It is almost like, God experiences this barrenness in a way. Yeah. And then when a barren woman enters into the story, amidst all of these cultural tropes about what's going on there, mm-hmm. we see this response from God that is, hey, I actually know what this is like, and I'm here with you. Now we're starting to get into some really, uh, uh, not only philosophical depths with theodicy, yeah. but also practical ones as well. Um, and and you see the same response with God in Israel's exile. Exile is a kind of death. It's a loss of life mm-hmm. and a loss of potential life. Remember, I would call that a miscarriage in a way. It, it, especially loss legacy. Loss of future, sure, right? because loss of legacy, loss right. of future. And so what's the response with, with God in exile? Mm-hmm. You know, when that happens, it's God saying, hey, I'm actually here with you. I know what this is like, so let's move forward together. And now we're getting a more a more complete discussion depiction of theodicy that I think the Bible has, it's just kind of hidden in there. Yeah. Um, and if the source of suffering is also one who has endured that suffering and is seeking to overcome that suffering, it, it still seems to leave some questions that we don't have uh, time to address here in this episode, but it isn't as simple as it's God's fault. Um. And, and so this is something we have to think about anytime we're reading this. The book of Lamentations actually does this better. Um, because by the time you get to the end of Lamentations, you find out that, you know, all the language is, God, you did this to us, you did this to us. And by the time you get to the end of Lamentations, you realize that the very people screaming at God are actually depicting God at the same time. Yeah. And there is there is an issue of... you. You still have the issue here, if you're trying to guess what I'm referring to, you still have the issue of, but where did suffering come from? Right. The Bible's response is to say, yes, we still have to handle that, but what we know is that our God, who we are saying is all-powerful, is still good because of how our God responds to suffering. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So that that is kind of what is going on with this whole picture of barrenness, but also theodicy. Um and one of the images that I, I like to use when we're talking about this um, is that of a good parent. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it's the interaction between omnipotence and free will. Okay, so 
in order for autonomous human beings to exist, everything cannot be, uh, sorry, Calvinist, predestined. Um, right. If it is, then, you know, we're more of a machine. Now um, we do talk about whether God creates suffering because, you know. Right. Yeah. So what free will does is it makes some room for the human person to incorporate evil. You sure. still have that problem of, well, how are humans able to choose it? Right. But it's like we were talking about the societal expectations. That's a suffering caused by human, or, you know, human right. ways. So. But if we wanted to get into the philosophical depths, we would go, but what makes it possible for a human to even choose Right. The evil or the suffering or the wrong. Right, and here we do the free and, will. And that still traces it back. If, if free will is a thing, it mm-hmm. still traces its way back to God. Right. And so how how would that play into the actual narrative? And and a lot of theologians, the way they interact with this is they say, um, in order for love to be chosen, mm-hmm. the, uh, the alternative has to be offered. Um, again, if it's not, then it's just a... a a machine, you know, it's yeah. a it's a video game that we have no free will within. Again, this get it's almost annoying how complex this is. But <laughs> where this goes, okay, getting back to the good parent is that in order for the children to choose love, development, well-being, thriving, flourishing, health, whatever, um, there has to be opportunities for them to discover that, and yeah. within that, suffering becomes a potential. And so what? What does matter, and I think this is what the Bible is primarily pushing, what matters is how the parent responds. Okay, if the parent responds by continuing to put forth the suffering of the child, uh, well, that that's not a very good parent, a very powerful one. Yeah. Uh, but this is what very David mm-hmm. David Bentley Hart says. Well, mm-hmm. the kingdom of God is more like a nightmare at this point. Exactly. Um, Who would want to be there? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so you know your 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 child falls and scrapes their knee. That's suffering. You know, okay, that that's that's a reality of of suffering. It's simple as scraping the knee. Well, if the parent pushed the child, right? Um, all right, we got some questions there. But if the parent was giving the child room to discover and become, and that happened, it's still not good. But how the chair the parent responds can can make that good. Um, I do not want to oversimplify this. I mean, you're talking 2,000 years at least oh, of people theorizing, and there's there's probably seven to ten very popular theories of theodicy. And what most people, if you go and you read all of these, what you'll probably do is go, you actually need to combine them and use bits and pieces of all say, of them. Yeah. No, no one of these theories, mm-hmm. just like atonement theories, no one of them completely captures it. Um but at the end, when we are reading the biblical text, especially a chapter like this where, where Jacob says, you know, am I in place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I want us to at least be able to know there's a lot more information here that we need to work with. When we read a passage like this, instead of going just like, well, God's an ass, um, or in the other side of that of going, yep, see, barren women. Shame on you. Yeah. Instead instead of jumping to one of those just ridiculous perspectives, you start seeing the nuance of all of this from the theodicy conversation to the monotheism and henotheism Mm -hmm. to the the culture of uh, of barrenness as a curse in that sociological world. Um, Now it's easier to go, uh, the real answer here is how God responds. So pay attention to that. Anytime you see a conversation like that, Pay attention to how God's responding in the midst of that. 
and what it says about God. Because at the end, they're trying to uphold God's power, omnipotence, sovereignty, whatever you want to use there, and God's goodness. Yeah. And they always veer towards sovereignty and power, always emphasizing that. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes tricky for them to go, but but look, our God's also good. See how our God responds. Yeah. That's kind of the thrust. Oh, within this, yeah. I think I think we just completely inchoately handled the Odyssey in <laughs> 32 minutes. Well, and I think that this is where the humility of our human finitude helps to keep in mind because these things are just hard to understand. You know, mm. it takes a lot of deep thought. So you can't make a simplistic reading of a text because, you know, you have to know how are you ever going to dig to the bottom of all this? Yeah. So. I only want to end with one thing and it's from the trauma side. If you are not decently equipped in the in the theodicy conversation, shut your mouth. Yeah. Okay, so this is the stereotypical Christian at the funeral of the young person who died and I'm 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 communicating this from experience, okay? Uh who says everything happens for a reason. Uh don't say that, actually. Your intentions are beautiful. They're great. You're very uninformed. Please, just don't. You don't, you don't have to solve this. Um, because there is something to be said for it. You should know the philosophical, philosophical complexities of what you're saying. But also, pragmatically, the practice of trauma and recovery within suffering is really delicate. There are very specific techniques that need to be used. And, and just because you got some bright idea from a Bible passage that you did not read very well doesn't give you the authority to speak to that, okay? Um, I, and I, 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 Amy's laughing as I'm saying this right now. But it's funny because it's such a problem. Yeah. You know, um, I've, I've seen this happen way too many times, and all it does is, is cause more suffering. Um, and I do... Yeah, I guess I I think I, this is the case with a lot of things, but Christians should learn to speak less and learn more. Absolutely. This is why we do this podcast. This, this is why there's a whole episode that only covered two verses. Exactly. So um, be, be really careful with that and know there's a whole pragmatic side to this. And actually in that, the Book of Lamentations is a, is a great book about how to respond to trauma and suffering. It actually shows you a lot of the practice, Art, artfully, of course. It's it a poem, does, but, but read it, it carefully because that's a tricky one. It, it reveals the actual pragmatic process, you know, that I would recommend to somebody of, hey, how do I deal with, uh, you know, I just have a friend who uh, endured a tragedy. What do I do? Hey, well, just take what you see in Lamentations. That's it, mm-hmm. um, and it's a really beautiful thing. There's a there's a couple really good commentaries on Lamentations. We'll probably just do Lamentations at we some should. point on this, but. Um, as we're encountering theodicy in Genesis, we wanted to take time to emphasize that. So that's uh, our episode on Genesis 30 verses 1 and 2. And next time we'll get into the rest of chapter 